Marko Čaši Webby Sauras, Ara Peri Arma Karev Zame Maim Sekwal, Kaza Polenka Maxena Čemsu Zardelhev, Kaza Šemeki Devišen Lokev Zečem Helev. Anna Vrachar and Matthew Reed, uh, welcome to Reimagining Soviet Georgia. Um, we're so glad you guys are here with us today. Uh, Anna, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, who are you and what do you do? Uh, hi, Brian. So uh, my name is Anna. I'm based in Zagreb in Croatia. Um, I'm an activist with the People's Health Movement Europe, but also with uh, a couple of local groups including the Organization for Workers' Initiative and Democratization. And in this local group, uh, I work with a couple of comrades. We research healthcare, uh, especially uh, nurses organizing and uh, the commercialization of healthcare in Croatia, which has been going on since the late, late 80s onwards, so especially fo focusing on the transition period. And, and Matthew? Yeah, hi, uh, Brian, Soko and Anna. Um, I'm Matthew. I work at the uh, Internationale Forschungsstelle DDR, that is uh, International Research Center, GDR. And uh, we are sort of re-examining socialism from the 20th century. Uh, obviously, our main focus is on the GDR, the German Democratic Republic, or East Germany, as it is commonly known. Um, and we're sort of trying to draw out uh, lessons for the future, uh, particularly for progressive movements, so that we can uh, learn from our own history um, and, uh, yeah, sort of reclaim this history for ourselves as well. Um, Great. So on today's discussion, uh, you know, we were going to talk about uh, the experiences of healthcare um, in uh, Socialist Yugoslavia and in uh, the GDR. So. Anna, why don't you start? Uh, why don't you just give us a little outline of some of your research and some of your thoughts? Yeah, sure. So um, maybe I can start with why we started researching healthcare in the first place here. And that was because um, there was essentially no left take on healthcare uh, since we, um, so um, essentially until I think 2015 uh, when we started working on that, uh, which was interesting because it's always such a, such a big deal, you know, know you uh, we were always hearing about uh, the changes that were happening uh, there were dozens of reforms happening uh, in healthcare of uh, of Croatia as well as uh, in other in other countries uh, formerly in Yugoslavia uh, but there was no comprehensive approach to you know uh, an analysis on why this was happening and in what what direction it was going uh, and then there was another uh, there, there was another uh, essentially reason for us to do that and that was because we were seeing especially primary healthcare being uh, reimagined in a way that was pulling it away from the people and uh, reshaping it completely co uh, compared to what we were told primary healthcare is uh, 
and when we started researching it, it was quite interesting because we saw that, you know, when we talk about primary primary healthcare in the context of Europe, um, and maybe in BHM Europe, we do that a, a lot. Uh, we talk about 78 and Almata and the declaration of Almata, which kind of brings forward this vision of comprehensive primary healthcare. And uh, uh, what we were thinking is, well, essentially, we had that even before. So if you look uh, even at uh, the pre-war, uh, World War II period in Yugoslavia, you see this trend of social medicine, uh, socialized medicine, uh, which tries to address all these social determinants of health, which are uh, one of the core uh, elements of the Almata Declaration. And so that was interesting for us, you know, to see how in Yugoslavia you had something that's considered avant-garde in the mainstream in Europe and in the world uh, in the late 70s. Uh, and it's essentially being implemented here even before. Uh, so that's how we started. And then we started uh, digging a bit around uh, in the archives. We were also, uh, as much as possible, trying to talk to people who had uh, essentially uh, taken part in the building of this primary healthcare system, which was there before. And so um, that was interesting because it was, well, essentially from what we heard and what we read, it was essentially everything that a uh, primary healthcare uh, system should look like uh, if Almata was to be followed. So it was people-oriented, it was based in the community, it was rooted in what the community wanted and uh, how it wanted to, you know, how, how it wanted uh, healthcare, to, healthcare to function. Um, it was also organized in a way which was accessible, not only physically, but also in a number of ways. So it's... Um, Throughout the Yugoslav period, you uh, you could see that um, healthcare centers were built in the neighborhoods. But they were also located inside or nearby factories. So it was, and I think that's something that Matthew will uh, might touch upon later on. Uh, it's very similar. So it's uh, just uh, reaching out to people where uh, in the places where they live, where they spend a lot of time, uh, and shaping this kind of healthcare to address the needs that they essentially have. So that's. That's like the broad perspective that we took. Then there were a couple of elements which came out of here, which uh, became more interesting for, for further research. Uh, one of them was definitely the way that people were encouraged uh, or enabled to participate uh, in healthcare and in shaping healthcare policies at a local or at a factory level. Especially uh, in the late, uh, again, in the late uh, 70s, when we have this uh, um, approach to self-management in healthcare, uh, which institutionalizes this, uh, this belief that people, as much as health workers, but also the users, uh, have to have a say in how, uh, how their health uh, healthcare is organized. And so um, that was interesting for a number of reasons. It was interesting because... Uh, while we were discussing, while we were researching this a couple of years ago, we were also hearing increasing calls towards participation in healthcare uh, and uh, the importance of putting people at the center. But what seemed to us was that the meaning was completely different. So while in Yugoslavia you had this approach that uh, there was a very, you know, it was a very concrete. You had uh, you had institutional forms through which people should take part in shaping their healthcare. Uh, the things that we, we were seeing then uh, in recent years is very different. It's uh, something that's uh, quite, um, quite, it's not defined. 
And it's not actually clear what it means when you say that you want people to take part. Uh, essentially, in Croatia, what it means when, when people say now that they want people to take part in, in healthcare, in healthcare decision making, uh, is that uh, they should follow a certain behavior which makes them not fall sick, while at the same time ignoring all the social framework that is uh, that is shaping the health of people that, uh, that that we're seeing. So that was an interesting thing because we also saw throughout this research that you know um, the formal uh, the formal introduction of self-management was a wow thing because it's uh, so again it's something that, uh, that we're not hearing so much about today. On the other hand, it was tricky because it still faced the same problems that we see in the interaction between healthcare workers and patients right now. Because then again, if you um, if you look at how people experienced it, they always talked about how, yes, we were there in the same place at the same time with our doctors and with the nurses, um, but the asymmetry of knowledge was so so profound that we had no uh, no actual mean for communicating and this became a big problem so there was you know there was a good attempt to make health more democratic uh, while at the same time you still had to struggle with the same problem which you have today which is essentially that yes so patients and health workers talk about illnesses in very different ways uh, but their lacks maybe um, a really honest attempt to bridge this gap. So there's um, there's very little effort put into how people can actually find a language to share and to, when they talk about health. And then um, the third and maybe final thing I think that uh, pushed us towards researching this was again this kind of trend of commercialization of privatization that came in even before um, uh, before so Yugoslavia fell apart into into uh, into these kind of countries uh, if we okay let's call them countries for uh, for discussion's sake today uh, but uh, so the course of commercialization started well before that uh, we saw of course you know the impact of how structural adjustment and loans pushed the quite uh, progressive, let's say, uh, the comprehensive primary healthcare paradigm that we had in Yugoslavia, it pushed them towards what uh, was there in in the rest uh, in the rest of Europe. So that was one thing that uh, we thought it was particularly important to address, um, because with time people lost kind of the feeling of why that's important and why it's important to actually talk about uh our healthcare being provided by private but by the private sector instead it became natural for people to say well it doesn't matter if my doctor is a private operator or if they're um or if they're um a public operator until not until but while i receive the healthcare that i need uh it was not so before and I think that's important to say. It took, it took a lot of concentrated effort to change that narrative. Uh, and what one of the the first uh, analysis that we did showed was that there was this really wide ranging effort to change the language about healthcare. 
and then uh, that if you look before the 80s you had a um, you had terminology that spoke about rights that spoke about social determinants of health of people being uh, people having the right to access the healthcare that they need whenever they need it. And then throughout the 80s, you see it changing and people talking about, um, so essentially about introduce, the introduction of a market-based logic into healthcare. And that's very, uh, very explicit. There's no shame in that people, uh, high-placed people in the ministry go into the media and talk about uh, how people are being spoiled, that they are spoiled because uh, they expect healthcare to be provided at no cost at all. Uh, so that's something that, you know, we wanted to show that it wasn't, uh, that discourse wasn't valid for a long period of time. And it's essentially something that gets introduced in the very late 80s or even in the in the early 90s. And then we have this kind of uh, continuation of the same trend until today uh, in a very disorganized manner, if I can add. So it's uh, complete chaos because uh, um, the reframing of healthcare in Croatia and the also up to a point in Serbia and Slovenia and Bosnia, uh, Macedonia and so on. Um, so it took a bit of a different approach than if we look at other health systems, which were uh, public before and then privatized, because uh, in Yugoslavia, it was already decentralized. And so uh, there was kind of a moment of confusion because the trend then was to essentially take a centralized system and decentralize it uh, because it's easier to privatize so the private sector can choose pick and choose the sections that it uh, that it wants uh, in Yugoslavia it wasn't so easy to do that because you already had this kind of decentralized uh, system which first had to be centralized and then broken up again in order to let the private uh, private sector in uh, so this kind of, um, yeah, this kind of approach impacted how healthcare, uh, had been reformed then in the nineties. And it essentially led us to the situation that we have today, uh, which is, um, mostly privately operated primary healthcare. But invisible if someone is not really uh, is not really uh, accustomed to talk about health. It's not something that that is visible to most of the patients. It's there if you go and look at where the money goes and who's actually the doctor who provides care. And Matthew, yeah. So um, we uh, started looking at healthcare uh, in the GDR as part of our. A publication series called Studies on the DDR, and we published uh, the second study in this series uh, at the beginning of this year, and it focuses uh, on the healthcare system. Uh, we started researching the issue sort of during the COVID pandemic um, because we realized that, uh, yeah, I mean, the healthcare system in Germany was really collapsing uh, at the time, and uh, it's sort of raised the question of uh, how do you do these uh, how, how can one react to such a, a pandemic more appropriately or more efficiently? And so we uh, got in touch actually with a uh, former GDR uh, physician 
who uh, specialized in social medicine, which is uh, also what Anna was just talking about, right? This this idea of the social determinants of of health, um, and we kind of wanted to understand how the GDR and socialist healthcare in general um, went about this issue of how do you actually uh, shape these or or let's say influence these social determinants, these social factors in order to really prevent illness from happening in the first place. Um, and this is what we try to really draw out in this publication that we produced. Um, and we sort of, what we figured out is that a lot of it rests on the idea of uh, socialist property relations, right? So public ownership uh, of the economy is really key in this sense, right? Because if you um, if you have the, 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 the structures of society uh, in a centralized uh, manner, if you can control them in a centralized manner and sort of manage them, uh, then you can also really shape these social determinants, right? So um, you can integrate healthcare into you know the workplace, the schools, universities, the neighborhood, uh, and so on. And in this way, you can really systematically sort of investigate and tackle these everyday healthcare risks, right? So it's uh, in a way you're taking a very sort of socio-political approach to health policy. Um, and I think that's what uh, enabled a lot of these socialist states to come from a much weaker position. And uh, in terms of just sort of general health statistics, they actually catch up with um, the West, which was in a, a stronger position um, within a relatively short period of time. Um, and so also based on these sort of public, uh, public ownership, the socialist property relations, uh, what we noticed uh, happened in the GDR, and you know, it was a forty-year history um, that you know, healthcare came to be understood as something. It wasn't, you know, an individual responsibility, but it was very much a social responsibility. Um, and it was, um, you know, just to give an example, uh, checkups for children, for example, were uh, done within the kindergarten and the schools, uh, so that the parents weren't left to organize things like uh, vaccination appointments for their children. Uh, or dentist appointments and so on, uh, which I don't know what it's like in uh, where you guys live right now, but here in Germany, for example, uh, this is all things. These are all things that parents have to organize themselves. And uh, in the case of uh, dentistry, this is something that parents also have to pay for themselves. Uh, so rather than leaving it up to the parents and also creating this burden for the parents, uh, it was this sort of idea that you could. Uh, make healthcare and health protection a social responsibility. So also in the workplace, for example, you would have regular checkups. Uh, you would also have inspections uh, in the neighborhoods, measuring noise and air pollution, just making sure that, you know, everyday healthcare um, or standards are being uh, protected so that you can actually avoid illness in the first place. Uh, so it's a very heavy emphasis on uh, what they call prophylaxis, right? So preventing uh, illness in the first place. Um, yeah, and I think uh, what we also noticed when we were researching this is that uh, Germany is a very interesting example, right? Because you have, uh, after the Second World War, you have two German states. You have a, a socialist East Germany and a capitalist West Germany. And um, this allows you to basically contrast uh, between the capitalist system in the West and the socialist system in the East. And really, uh, even though they have this shared history, they depart from very uh, or they take very different paths uh, after the second world war um, and so it was very interesting for us to look at uh, 
some of the structures that were really crucial in the GDR. Uh, maybe we can get into those later. But uh, you know, this they, they develop new models of of outpatient uh, healthcare. So the the healthcare that you receive outside the hospital system, you know, rather than having these private practices um, of sort of self employed doctors that are scattered throughout uh, the country or the city, you know, you have sort of more centralized uh, polyclinics, what they called them. Uh, and so there were sort of uh, different uh, models that they used um, to to really pioneer a new approach to healthcare uh, that really, as I said, place an emphasis on this question of, you know, social medicine and prevention rather than relying on uh, self-employed doctors to basically be uh, financially incentivized to to treat patients rather than actually prevent their disease. Right? I mean, a private uh, physician's office. Is actually incentivized to have patients keep coming back for treatment, right? You actually want them to uh, stay ill in a way um, so that you can keep prescribing the medicine and, and so on. Uh, and so this is, uh, I think, one of the reasons why the GDR case uh, is very interesting. And um, I think the other aspect that's interesting is that you know, the GDR, I, in, in many ways, you could say it's the only socialist state uh, in the 20th century that was built uh, in the Western world, you know, what we call the Western world. I mean, it was, uh, you know, Germany was an advanced capitalist state. Um, and after the Second World War, uh, the third Eastern uh, portion of it then became uh, a socialist state. Uh, and I think you have a very interesting mixture then of sort of uh, this tradition uh, of medicine from the West with then the sort of socialist uh, tradition and influences coming from the Soviet Union, uh, and they created a, a very interesting um, and I would say very advanced uh, healthcare system in East Germany um, that, yeah, I hope we can maybe discuss in a little bit more detail uh, throughout the rest of this episode. Um, I think maybe one last thing to highlight uh, for the introduction is that, you know, uh, the, the, the East Germany, just like all the other socialist states in the 20th century, you know, they were operating under incredibly difficult uh conditions right so uh, especially sort of in east germany you had obviously the post-war destruction um and then you had these these sanctions that were imposed by the west uh, on the east and sort of greatly hindering you know the importation of, of modern medical technology and equipment and so on and then east germany was also footing these reparation bills because the west uh, stopped paying uh, shortly after the war and you also had an open border between uh, East and West Germany, right? So uh, East Germany is trying to build socialism, trying to construct socialism uh, from 1952 onwards. And uh, for the first almost 10 years, it's basically doing this with open borders uh, and paying these reparations while the West is getting all this money from the Marshall Plan and so on. So uh, I think this is another thing that we can learn from the GDR is that uh, how do you actually build uh a healthcare system that's not oriented around profit, but really around uh, serving the people and protecting the people from uh, from disease and illness, while uh, operating under these extremely difficult conditions. You know, I think it's uh, similar to Cuba in this sense that you know they they've proved that even under these really difficult situations, uh, it's possible to actually create a healthcare system that's really efficient and um, you know in a lot of ways uh, more effective at preventing illness than uh, what you see in, you know, the advanced uh, industrial states in the West. Um, thank you so much for the introductions. So one of the interesting things, um, so I 
mostly have done some research on the transition uh, from Soviet Georgian healthcare to capitalist, whatever, different stages, different kinds of levels of intensity of liberalization in Georgia. Um, but what was interesting for me was thinking about 1917, the Russian Revolution, and the insane amounts of hardship, disease, <laughs> a complete collapse that the new revolutionary government was facing and how they respond to it. As opposed to 1991, the Georgian government also facing collapse, but even less so because you actually have an infrastructure already built, unlike 1917 when you have nothing. And the most, you know, like the so-called, you know, talented specialists are leaving as well. And so how did these two governments meet these demands? It's like, you know, the uh uh the the Soviet, the revolutionary government prioritizes and understands that capitalism brings sickness. You know, this is, of course, you have all stated this, so this is, um, you know, poverty brings sickness. And then you have to sort of cure at the roots of things, you know, the social determinants of healthcare, if you want to say of health, um, and really prioritize the sort of holistic way of people need, you know, uh, homes, they need hygiene, you know, uh, they need um, someone to teach them how to do things like wash their hands or, you know, like basic hygienic kind of codes and so on. Um, and then to create, you know, as many uh, clinics, hospitals, train as many nurses, and to make sure that there's enough doctors and nurses available for each, you know, population. Now you have 1991, and it's like, let's completely cut all healthcare. Um, you will also have you know new cases of TB and all these diseases that have been cured spring back up, and then you have you know the, uh, some international agencies like lend a hand and give a little bit of money to put out the fires here and there, but really the the overall thrust of the the neoliberal sort of governments is that. We have to cut costs. That's the most important. We have to privatize. We have to sell everything off. If we, if we don't sell it, we just like let it go to waste. We fire all the nurses and doctors that we can. And just every man on his own. You know, if you don't have the money, it's too bad for you. And creating these, even the, the state-run places were just like, kind of like a bazaar. You know, each doctor was private under the state-owned um, infrastructure which led to if you look at you know all the things we've studied and, and seen like 89 levels or 88 levels and now is almost every single illness you know health indicator has worsened in the last 30 years we compare this to the soviet union 30 years they had increased longevity in incredible amounts it was like 20 seven or something was the, the average life expectancy in like 1917, something incredibly low, um, uh, to raising the life to standards. And actually also had having fought World War II and one, you have still just things, you know, besides the, the slight drop in life expectancy because of the war, 
you have almost every single health indicator, um, social uh, sort of indicators just going up and up and up. So just seeing the two different ways, not it's not just about like money. It's not just about the resources available at the time, but it's actually having the politics to believe that you should actually care for people. This is your responsibility. And to look at health is, is part and parcel of a larger project of communism. Um, makes all the difference in the world, apparently. You know, just to look at the, the kinds of uh, economic and, and uh, you know, other problems that they were facing, different types of, types of government. So uh, while I was thinking about all of this, um, I wanted to ask all of you, it's like, well, how much does this idea of money, you know, having the financial resources, because it's always been always reduced down to this money equation, how much does it actually affect healthcare in a sense? Like, how do you sort of make sense when people say, well, we have to get rid of these, uh, you know, large, overblown, um, bloated, sorry, oh, bloated, you know, states, um, infrastructure, and, and, and so on, cadre to make room for a much more so-called efficient healthcare. So what do you to make of this sort of discussion, uh, this idea of finances and not so, having money? Yeah, okay, so uh, I can I can have a go um, because it is a very, you know, it's, uh, it's something that's very present here. And uh, I would add that, you know, um, while there's this kind of talk about the importance of reducing costs, uh, there's also talk about how important it is to have a high tech uh high tech health uh, health system and that's essentially uh, you know when um when we talk to people who are um involved somehow in health policy make, making here um the uh, the response that you get when for example you bring up the example of of cuba and you say you know well cubans don't have much money but they have a health system which uh, which essentially responds to people's needs is that but they say but yeah but you know they're poor it's not really healthy it's not really a health system if you don't have uh, if you don't have all the up to date uh, health technology uh, and it's a very problematic thing for me i think that we lost this kind of conception that health is much more than uh, whether we have uh, seven MRs in each hospital or we don't because we had experience you know, so in, in Yugoslavia that um, that it can be a much more effective health system at a much lower cost than this and I think one of the most important things that we noticed that uh, when we talk about primary health care so in, in Yugoslavia it was addressed because it was seen as an efficient health strategy so they were saying, you know, we're doing primary healthcare because it works. It makes sense. Uh, it's something that uh, that will help people to lead a better life. Um, today, at least formally, there is also this kind of focus and fixation of primary healthcare, but it's a, most exclusively uh, framed in this discourse that we have to strengthen primary healthcare because it costs less than hospitals cost. So that's, I think, one of the, um, I think it's one of the main problems that we're facing here. Um, but also, I think that, you know, uh, because of this change of discourse, uh, is that mm, there has also been like a collective forgetting of how health infrastructure was built before. 
because it wasn't so it was up to you know to a large extent it was public investment so you know to be uh, to build hospitals to be uh, to build maternity wards uh, and so on but there was also a very strong drive among people among workers who pledged part of their salaries and pledged part of their income uh, to build local community health centers so uh, in the era area where i was born you still have uh health they're called health stations because they're a bit outside of town so they might be a bit more difficult to reach they might be for a uh for a ruler uh, rural population and you have you still have tables which state you know so this building was built because the workers the farmers whoever of this area essentially wanted to have a health center and uh, were able to contribute in some way. Sometimes it was money, sometimes it was essentially work. So people went to work to build the health stations that that were there. Um, if you compare it to what, uh, what I think we're all hearing now uh, is that essentially there is no money uh, and yet money is essential to build this uh, high-tech hospitals that we all need. So it's a bit of a... Mm, yeah, it's uh, it's like uh, an attempt an attempt to confuse people, I would say, because uh, we still do have health workers who experienced a completely different system and a different approach to healthcare, uh, and a different way uh, to live healthcare and to understand what it's supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would maybe build off of what Anna was saying, actually, because I think. Um... You know, this question of uh, having enough money for healthcare, uh, I mean, this is a bit of, I guess, what you could consider a paradox is that Germany today, right, is a leading country uh, in the EU, or is the largest economy uh, in the EU. And it is uh, going, or its healthcare system is going through a major crisis at the minute. You know, I mean, uh, waiting times uh, are a disaster. Uh, there's a shortage of doctors, there's a shortage of staff. Uh, the hospitals uh, are, are closing, there are not enough beds, and the uh, clear uh, reflection of this was during the COVID pandemic, uh, when, you know, uh, the healthcare system was really brought to its knees, um, which is uh, shocking, considering, as I said, it's, in theory, right, it has the, the most resources available that uh, maybe any country has for this kind of uh, pandemic response, right? Um so I think, you know, the idea that you can just throw money at healthcare and then it will uh, be, you know, more efficient or more effective is is kind of uh, an illusion. You know, I think what uh, really matters is the sort of the structure of the healthcare system, you know. Uh, this is one of the things that we noticed when researching the GDR is that, you know, they nationalized uh, the healthcare system originally. And then as the as time progressed, they began also... Uh, nationalizing other sectors of the of society and the economy as well. And through this, you basically had a, a very sort of centralized, unitary system of healthcare that was led by the health ministry, right? So you, you didn't have this sort of fragmented system like we see in, in so many states today where you have sort of publicly funded services on one hand that are rather weak and, you know, underfunded. And then you have sort of privately organized care facilities, some hospitals and so on on the other uh, and these sort of there's not a lot of coordination between these different sectors. Uh, they're sort of all profit oriented as well. Um, and it's it's just there's no real leadership. You know, there's nothing that's 
coordinating the system in a really unified, unitary manner. Uh, and this is something that was completely different than GDR. You know, all of the healthcare facilities, or even just uh, health institutions in general, right? So hospitals, clinics, also pharmacies, research centers, you know, university uh, research um uh, faculties and so on, they were all part of this unitary system and they could respond to uh, the issues when they came up, uh, implement the decisions that were made by the by the state and by its decision-making structures and so on. So, it, it, you know, I think the idea that you can throw more money at it is not, uh, is, is the wrong way of looking at it, at it, right? It's much more got to do with the structure of it and how you go about it, you know, how you um, actually conceive of a healthcare system for society in general. Uh, and I think here, you know, the crucial thing is, is that healthcare it cannot be oriented around private economic interests. You know, it has to be uh, oriented around the needs of the people. And this is something that you 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 never have in a, in a capitalist uh, state. Um, and maybe just to add to one thing uh, that Anna was saying that I thought was interesting, you know, this idea of primary care as being um, cheaper than, than, than inpatient stays in hospitals. I mean... I think that this was in the GDR sort of uh, unspoken uh, truth that that people held that you know if if you can avoid an inpatient stay, it is actually more economical, right? It's more economical to prevent illness in the first place. Uh, I mean, if obviously if your healthcare system is based on profit, you don't want to prevent people from getting sick because you want to charge them for the treatment. But if you actually, as a society, prevent illness from the in the first place. Then um, you can you can have a healthcare system that's a lot more economical, uh, and you know you can see this in countries also like Cuba or the GDR as well, where you know like I said they have a lot of sanctions uh, issues with sanctions, so they can't import uh, the technology, you know, um, and at times couldn't afford it either, even if they could. So uh, you know through this idea of prevention, you can actually create an effective healthcare system without actually having to throw a bunch of money at it. Maybe if you have some information about the so supplementation to healthcare with this the uh, the resort system, let's say, <laughs> um, what role did these resorts, you know, sanatoriums play in preventative healthcare in Yugoslavia and GDR? If you have information, of course. Uh, maybe I mean I can say a few words about it. Uh... We didn't really look at the uh, resort system in touch depth. Uh, they were called Kur. You still have them in Germany. Um, but yeah, basically the idea is that, uh, I mean, obviously you can have a, a resort uh, Kur stay after uh, treatment, you know, as part of what they call rehabilitation, right? Um, and again, in the GDR, you know, because it, you had these socialist property relations, because the system was unitary, uh, it meant that you could sort of integrate, you know, prevention, treatment, and rehabilitation. And so, uh, when a when a patient uh, is maybe sick, uh, the whole process of then treatment and rehabilitation is sort of coordinated, right? So you can uh, a doctor is in contact with uh, these resorts where where they can uh, send patients and so on. And then the the resort that receives the patient is then they have all these uh, patient files because it's you know it's a unitary system it's not like a private resort um, where the patient then has to deal with all of this kind of um, bureaucratic side of things right um, 
But in the GDR, you also actually had uh, preventative resorts, like uh, what they call de cure. So before uh, patients would even get sick, you would, uh, you know, if they were if they had a stressful job or uh, a difficult situation uh, in their life at that point, they could uh, go to one of these resorts. You know, often at the seaside, uh, at the Ostsee, the um, the northern part of eastern Germany, and uh, yeah, basically uh, have a couple of weeks longer um, to to make sure that they wouldn't get sick in the first place. Uh, yeah. I must admit, we didn't do much research into this, but so just thinking a bit about what we're seeing, uh, like building from what we're seeing now. Um, yes, so th there were um, just linked to what Matthew was just saying about, you know, uh, workers having the possibility to go somewhere uh, which is publicly owned. Like uh, most of the factories, most of the major employers had that kind of infrastructure on the seaside. So, you know, if you were working for a factory, you were essentially guaranteed some time off, time off during the summer where you could just go on vacation. So it was um, definitely that kind of thing has, uh, has its health, at least, you know, mental and physical health benefits when you look at it. Uh, it's very rare now because people don't ca cannot actually afford to go uh, to, to use that infrastructure. It was all sold off at some point. So that was one of the, but okay, so maybe that was one of the things that we didn't really uh, analyze through the lens of prevention because prevention was mostly done um, through uh, territorial services and let's say through the service of community, of community nurses uh, services, which started operating quite early on. And so uh, that part was, mostly about reaching out to people's homes, especially in working class neighborhoods, because it was recognized very early on. And that's, you know, if um, if we look at the reports of some of the community health centers, like 10 years after the Second World War, then you see, uh, you know, how they're talking about working class neighborhoods having very, uh, very bad social determinants of health still. Uh, people are living in very crowded conditions. They're they're living in basements. They're living in attics. Uh, it's all humid. And so, essentially, the prevention here was, uh, on the one hand, uh, more social housing, so improving the living conditions, but then also mapping through the community nurses services the situation that was on the ground. So the idea of having health workers who got to know the workers and who got to know their families uh, and could identify then their health needs and address them to the different polyclinics or ambulatories or uh, dispensaries, whatever people needed at that point in time. So that was, you know, uh, that was the broadest, I would say, attempt at prevention that Yugoslavia saw uh, at this period of time. Uh, and then third, of course, you know, um, there was this um, this pool of public infrastructure for rehabilitation, mostly. So uh, things that would include thermal waters and pools and so on and so on. Uh, you still have some of those which are publicly owned. Uh, but the problem now compared to before, uh, although it's always crowded, of course, is that it's very difficult to get there, uh, not only because it's crowded, but also because doctors 
uh, are implicitly de-incentivized to send people to rehabilitation to use the to use the services because it's uh, it's seen like supporting uh, time of work. It's like perceived as free time of work, uh, which is not necessary. So essentially, you have this problem where you um, you see the public infrastructure which is which was built for this purpose, uh, which is either being um, underfunded or it's being stigmatized in that way. So it's not really uh, it's not accessible to to the people who need it mostly. And uh, yeah, so essentially, if you need this kind of care today, you're forced to go to the private sector. So that's you're supposed to uh, you're forced to pay something. The resort system is was quite extensive also in Georgia. Um, it's absolutely not available anymore um, unless it's you pay out of pocket, whatever is left. Um, there are not that many left as well. Um, there's all these new adventures to convert them into like five, six star hotels here and there, the ones that they like. Um, and I was recently in Borjomi, which was like, it's like a health resort place. Oh no, Cyrus, sorry, there's another one. <laughs> and um, I went, they have like a free consultation where you can go and drink these like waters that come out and they have all these stations where you have different kinds of mineral waters and tell you what the makeup is. And they uh, prescribe these mineral waters like three times a day. And there's like different kinds of mineral waters. Um, and said that you have to, no matter what, like the full course you know, of treatment is a you know, minimum 10 days that you have to drink these. And I'm like, who can afford to stay here for 10 days? You know, and she's like, not that many people. <laughs> like, so this like now it's just like symbolic almost like they still have this maybe do like free consultation or like really cheap consultation but it's no one can actually afford to go there unless they're already kind of wealthy um it's all private uh, and very expensive so it's just like just so many examples of these kinds of things that can give you where you know it's completely gutted uh, from miners used to tell me they used to get like i think like about 30 days they can go to these resorts and rest because it's such a really horrible work life and you know to avoid like black lung and all these other problems and parkinson's and so many problems that they have just to be able to go um and also just uh, these these uh resorts these sanatoriums were also a place where they would mingle with other people from the soviet union so they would it kind of promoted this multiculturalism where they could meet people, some fell in love and got married, you know, some became friends and so on. And so even with the, the you know, the, uh, the abolition of all these treatment centers and resorts were also bad for health, but also bad for these, this, uh, being able to meet more people and see others and see them as equals or from the same place instead of what we only understand now is like wealthy Russians coming to Georgia and we have to serve them, right? Um, or like the Central Asians we barely see anymore, you know, very few. There was actually some in the resort areas still, which I thought was very interesting. They remembered and they still have that like culture. So it's just like being reduced down to now Georgians, very, you know, kind of more insular, very poor, cannot leave 
the country anymore. And anyone who comes here is already kind of middle, upper middle class. And usually we're in the hospitality service trying to serve them. So even that kind of level of being able to meet people and and, and that get to know them for 30 days and uh, is gone. On top of that, you know, which also promotes this sort of ethno-nationalistic culture as well. But can I jump in there? Because I think there's, for example, something that we're seeing here, uh, kind of maybe a bit related. So um, I think it also worked on a very local level. So, you know, this kind of mingling of people in into health services. Uh, that's also one thing that I would say stopped at some point because of practical reasons. So one of the first things to go after 1990 was... Um, was the system in in which people were allocated to the primary healthcare doctors, so to the GP or to the gynecologist or the pa- uh, pediatrician. Uh, and in Yugoslavia, it was, you know, you live here or you work here, so your doctor is this one. You don't get to choose. It's a doctor. They're trained to care for you. Uh, the assumption is they're all trained the same way, so they're all equally competent to care for you. That's the thing that goes out of the window. So the first thing that they say is, oh, well, okay, so now you can choose your doctor. And so you have, you know, um, the usual thing that happens is that, okay, so some people will choose, again, accordingly to the logic, I live here, so I want my doctor here, or I work here, and I want my doctor here. Uh, But then there's a number of people who will say, well, I heard that this doctor uh, is good and he cares for my wealthy uh, friends, so I might go j- just as well go there. And so uh, it's kind of uh, it affects healthcare, I would say, in more than one way, because at some at some point you have uh, doctors who don't actually know their patients anymore because uh, they're either overcrowded or. Um, Essentially, they get people who they see once in their life and never, never, never again. And then on the other hand, uh, you get doctors who get a lot of patients because uh, they're popular, if we can call them that way. Just like schools get popular because uh, it uh, word gets around that, you know, they have hip teachers. Uh, so just less. We have hip teachers, now we have hip gynecologists, which is kind of a problem. And it's uh, essentially not uh, not reflective of the quality of care as it's not reflective of the quality of education that you can get through, through, this, um, through this system. I think it's one of the things that change how people perceive healthcare mostly. I think that, you know, they will say, now you can freely choose your doctor this is freedom for you guys before you were forced to go to a doctor somewhere because it was close to you. Yeah, I think this is actually interestingly one of the uh, ideological talking points these days. I mean, actually in the GDR, it was a bit of a, a special case within the socialist camp because you still actually had, uh, well, to a certain degree, a freedom of choice uh, who your physician was um, in the socialist GDR. Uh, but today, one of the big arguments is, of course, like, oh, well, today you can choose uh, your doctor really freely in Germany. Uh, and and when you try to find a doctor, you realize, actually, uh, you can't choose one because they're all, they're all, no one's taking new patients because uh, there aren't enough doctors. Uh, so I think it's just one of those, uh, yeah, you know, this question of, of choice uh, and 
you know, the sort of counter point or the, the, the opposite of this is like mandatory, you know, uh, the session of oh, everything in the social states was mandatory, you know, like uh, we looked at, for example, also vaccinations, you know, uh, this idea of what is a mandatory vaccine and so on. And uh, what we realized when we researched it is, you know, it's it's not so much, it's, it's not like these vaccines are forced on people, but it was a, it was basically an opt-in system. So uh, it was mandatory for the state actually to provide uh, safe vaccines to all people. So you know the, this relationship of what's obligatory. You know it was a two-sided thing. It's not just that the patients are uh, have mandatory vaccines, but the state is also obliged to uh, ensure that this is uh, actually realizable. Um, and <clears throat> yeah, I think it's uh, something that's uh, so often left out of the debate uh, these days that. Actually, here uh, our society, this the state, is uh, failing its obligation to uh, deliver adequate healthcare, and uh, you can see that in other sectors of society as well. You know, education and so on, uh, and it's kind of uh, hidden behind this idea of choice, right? You can you can choose which school you send your kids to, you can choose which doctor. So actually, you're more free. But uh, of course, the reality is, is that uh, everything is full, everything's expensive, and at the end of the day, the quality of the care. Or the education uh, is actually worse. One, of course, very like important component of the socialist world that both Yugoslavia and GDR were in was this idea of, and maybe they were in two different parts of the socialist world, but the greater socialist world um, was about this idea of internationalism. And internationalism, of course, was not just like an ideology but had these material implications. Um, and one of the ways that it had a material implication was the fact that socialist states um, such as the GDR and Yugoslavia were, you know, assumed responsibility for helping specialists um, learn things and then go back to their states and bring with the skills that they learned in Belgrade or bring the skills that they learned in Berlin back to they're the states that were in the time of decolonization, especially oftentimes third world um, developmentalist socialist states, um, and they could bring this kind of expertise back. Um, and this was the real like one of the material um, expressions of this kind of idea of socialist friendship between nations. And, um, you know, I'm curious. And so I, I, I say all this to lead into the question of in both of your research, you know, what role did this um, internationalism play in the health systems of each country in the sense of foreign students coming and learning medicine or the inversely doctors or healthcare professionals from the Yugoslavia or GDR going abroad? Because one of the interesting dynamics to bring it to Georgia for a second is that Today in Georgia, we see that there are students from the Middle East or from Pakistan or from India who come to Georgia or even Palestine, actually, come to Georgia and study dentistry or study medicine. Um, but what's interesting is that, you know, in, the, in this uh, hyper-individualized capitalist world, they come to Georgia because it's cheap. Um, and they come to Georgia without some kind of like, you know, shared vision of a world, even in name. It's like they come because of the of the market. So I'm curious, like, 
in both the Yugoslav and GDR case, how internationalism played into medicine. Yeah, we actually um, did a, we produced a different text on this as well, um, which is on our website. Uh, you can find it there uh, in several languages. Um, and what we did is we actually spent quite a bit of time researching the uh, school that was in the GDR uh, specifically for this purpose, for training uh, young students from the global south, uh, from you know national liberation movements or newly liberated states, to uh, yeah basically receive an education, uh, a medical education in the GDR, and then return home so that they could help build their own uh, healthcare system, uh, which of course in this sort of post-colonial uh, context was is, is vital. You know, without healthcare, there can really be no social progress, uh, and oftentimes when these colonial powers retreated from their territories. They took uh, the infrastructure with them. They took the medical professionals with them uh, because they you know, weren't uh, educating the local population. So uh, what we noticed in this text is that, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the GDR was uh, just one uh, small state in the wider socialist camp where this was happening, right? Uh, but there was thousands of students coming, uh, receiving education, uh, with the explicit purpose of returning home, you know, uh, in Germany today, obviously there are also quite a few uh, students from uh, global South countries who come here. Uh, but oftentimes, what will happen is, first of all, they have to organize this education themselves, uh, which means uh, oftentimes they have to have the financial resources, uh, which in the GDR was actually made available to all of these students. Um, you know, uh, they had a stipend; they were part of the healthcare system. Uh, they had uh, all the resources they needed to, to focus on their studies. So this is the first uh, issue was, uh, you know, how did, how did these students actually get to study in uh, social states? And it was, it was through sort of agreements, right? Political or state level agreements uh, or with mass movements in these countries with the explicit purpose of these students returning home, right? So, um, they weren't uh, coming to, to Germany, for example, like a lot of students do these days, and then they become a doctor in Germany, and they send maybe remittances back home, but they actually return home so that you can gradually overcome this relationship of dependency uh, and actually have a stable, uh, really solid uh, healthcare system in these countries that are sending the students. Uh, and so, yeah, I can definitely say that in the GDR, this was a... a a huge program uh, and sort of a central pillar of uh, international solidarity. Uh, and it, of course, it should be said as well that this wasn't uh, uh, merely charity, you know. Uh, first of all, there was this sort of uh, learning from each other. So a lot of students, for example, from tropical um, regions uh, would come and bring uh, expertise on, um, yeah, um, plants, uh, medical plants and so on that were then... Uh, part of sort of co cooperative, collaborative um, programs with uh, GDR universities and so on. Um, but it was also seen as part of uh, the wider anti-imperialist struggle uh, generally. You know, it was seen as a way of undermining um, the influence of imperialism by helping these newly liberated states become, you know, truly independent, uh, no longer reliant on um, medical aid from the West and so on. So, uh, you know, it was uh, it wasn't just uh, some kind of charity or something you know it was really part of a uh, a struggle uh, which the gdr saw uh, as a you know against a common enemy 
uh, in imperialism, who was also imposing, you know, all these sanctions on on the socialist states as well. So, uh, yeah, I would say it was uh, certainly a central pillar of um, of the medical system in GDR. And I don't think there's much to add to that. Maybe just one element uh, which is um, parallel to the education project. Um, and so uh, what I found very interesting while we were looking into how Yugoslavia interacted with other, other countries when it came to healthcare was that there were also projects of exchange at the level of health system planning. So for example, you had the... Um, delegations coming from Iran to Yugoslavia to see at how the primary healthcare system uh, worked. And then you had delegations from Yugoslavia going to Iran to, you know, uh, to see how many of the elements can be implemented and what needs to be changed. Um, but the key point here is that, uh, you know, there was always room and there was always an understanding that something that worked in Yugoslavia did not necessarily have to work in the same form in any other country. So there, there wasn't this concept that we have this perfect healthcare system which works and now we just go and copy paste it everywhere. We have a health system which can we, we, which can serve as an inspiration to people and from which they can take some of the elements that are appropriate for um, you know for for the local context um, as compared to now where essentially. Uh, the Croatian health policy is based on a copy-paste approach primarily from West Europe. So this has been a major shift, you know, to how you, uh, to how you perceive uh, healthcare in society and how much freedom you have, uh, both to shape your own, but also to support others who are building their own health systems. Uh, yeah, that's, you know, one other interesting uh, dynamic I was interested, I wanted to discuss was um, obviously in though in Yugoslavia there were you know elements of um, uh, worker this worker management project very famously um, another kind of like elements of decentralization that uh, didn't exist in other um, state socialist uh, experiments. That aside, obviously. Um, in both the GDR and in Socialist Yugoslavia, there is an ideal um, of social ownership. Um, and there's an ideal of, you know, capital itself is not the um, engine of development, common property. And one of the things we see, obviously, especially in the post-socialist world, is a wild capitalism that is very detrimental to people's health. In, in many different ways, right? And some of this is infrastructural, where they decide to build homes, you know, what kinds of um, um, laws have been repealed that previously would have prevented, for example, where people are living, how people in the work process are being exposed to certain kinds of chemicals. We know for a fact in Georgia, the regulations for minors um, is much, much worse. Um, and so this leads me to a, a question, and, and if either of you have researched this, is, you know, how do you see the socialist approaches to living conditions and the labor process relate to kind of a social provision of trying to ensure people's health 
versus the kinds of dynamics you see in the, in, in the post-socialist regimes. And so what I'm, I guess what I'm asking is not so much healthcare provisions at the, at, the, at, the, at the hospital and at the doctor's office, but the way that you see sort of like a social um, engagement with it, protecting people's health at their place of, of living and in society and at the workplace. Yeah, I think um, this is what I was kind of trying to get at earlier as well. Um, this this question of public ownership, as I think it's very much uh, the key to understanding socialist healthcare. You know, um, I think uh, Sopo, for example, when she was talking about um, healthcare uh, in sort of post nineteen ninety uh, Georgia, it's like putting out fires. You know, uh, it's very much the same uh, thing in Germany today. Is uh, it's just a very sort of reactive. Uh, approach where you're sort of running around trying to fix what, what you know what they call market failures um, but I think what we really need to understand is that if you have public ownership in the economy you know you create sort of a framework for discussing and coordinating these health objectives in relation to you know the other objectives in society so your so political objectives your economic objectives your social objectives you know by having this public ownership you then create this uh, medium through which you can actually uh, weigh up uh, these different factors and decide which is the best approach. You know, I mean, um, there were a lot of issues, for example, in the GDR as well. You know, I mean, they had to reindustrialize the country, right? Especially since most of the heavy industry was historically in West Germany, they had to essentially uh, create their own industrial base. And this put a lot of pressure on on workers. You know, the, the working conditions were not great uh, for their health. Uh, you also had the issue that, for example, there was no real uh, natural energy sources in the East. You know, the coal mines, they were all in the West as well. So the East Germans, they ended up burning this uh, lignite uh, coal, which, you know, brown coal, which was incredibly dirty as a horrible pollutant and things like this. Uh, so it's not like, you know, they got rid of the profit motive in healthcare and then overnight everything was fine. You know, that's not the case at all. But the thing is, is that by having this public ownership in the economy, you could uh, create ways of, for example, uh, minimizing the input, uh, the impact of these detrimental effects on people's health. So, you know, for example, uh, they had these workplace inspections so that those uh, workers that were you know, exposed to real hazards and, you know, chemical hazards or, um, you know, maybe uh, strenuous work, that they could then also receive sort of tailored care through this occupational healthcare system, which again is part of this unitary healthcare uh, system, uh, which means it's not actually part of the enterprise, but it's independent of the enterprise. It's it's managed by the uh, Ministry of Health, which is different to occupational healthcare in the capitalist system, which is oftentimes part of the company, and their objective is basically just to get the workers fit enough to go back to work. Well, if you have an occupational health system that's at once in the workplace, but at the same time independent of the management of the enterprise, then you can actually create a, a system that's really looking out for workers themselves, right? Because this is the way it was in the social societies is that the people were, uh, they were the focus, they were the center. That was the whole reason for uh, economic progress was to improve the conditions of the people, not to generate profits. Um, so this is kind of the, the framework, I would say, that enables uh, society to really consciously, actively uh, shape society around people's needs, around their health, and not around, not around pro profit. And again, I think this is quite similar 
uh, to what we saw here. And then um, definitely, you know, uh, also there, let's begin with saying that there was quite a strong focus on the industrial sector. So if you had workers in factories the for a long time until until the 80s, the late 70s, let's say, uh, the, the focus was on strengthening that part of the of the workforce, so, you know, uh, on securing access to healthcare for them uh, in the factories. And, you, you know, if again, if you look at the space that we're surrounded by, you can see traces of how this was uh, organized and how it worked. Uh, there were doctors and there were nurses in the bigger workplaces, uh, which again had a very similar aim to what Matthew was just describing. It wasn't just, you know, somebody, get, for example, somebody's hand gets cut off at work and they're there to stitch it up and then just, uh, you know, send them back to work. But it's essentially also about prevention, about tracking what's happening in the workplace that can affect people's health. Uh, keeping track of the work uh, working rhythm, you know, of uh, how, for example, work in shifts affects people, how prolonged uh, working over the night affects the health of people. So these were all things that were there in the workplace for a very long time. Uh, on the other hand, one of the bigger problems was securing access to healthcare for the rural population and for the farmers. So that's one of the things that, uh, that uh, you know, we need to say that were not addressed in, uh, in the most proper way. But also it's fair to say that there was not time to address that in a more, uh, in a more effect, uh, effective and efficient way. So there were some, you know, there, there were gaps in the health policies that, uh, that were implemented at that, that point. But the important thing is that, yes, the priority was in the right place. So, you know, the priority was people's health. It was securing a healthy population, not just so that we can have a healthy workforce, but because a healthy population is something that, you know, people deserve to, it's something that people deserve to see. So I think that's, uh, that's one of the key issues that differ from today. So if we look at how, uh, again, occupational health is treated today, it's not treated, it's not here anymore. So it's um, it's not something that's perceived uh, as important at all. Uh, and the very few occupational specialists and services that you do have are for some reason privatized. So, you know, in, in order to get this kind of assessment by a doctor who uh, can say if something happened at work or not, you're forced to go to a private clinic. So again, that's something that most most workers cannot actually afford to do. Uh, the whole shift uh, has impacted. Um, yes, so it, essentially, it has uh, it has meant that we move health from a well-being framework to the market sphere, uh, and it's not only occupational health, but it's also children's health, for example, uh, or students' health. Um, as occupational medicine got eroded, so did health services for students and for school children. So this is something that you know it's uh, that also builds up over time, and it essentially means that uh, at the point when you go to a doctor, your health might already be so eroded that it will be more difficult to to get you the help you need uh, without proper care 
while you're at school or when you're a student, you cannot actually expect to see a healthy adult population which is informed about uh, its own health and it's actually informed about what the health system does. It's then just treated as a pure service. You go to a doctor because your head hurts. You don't go to a doctor because uh, you know that um, you've been living in a bad apartment with mold or something and uh, you're aware that it's not only about the physical health but it's also about the society that's shaping the conditions where you live in so that's I think a major shift that happened in over the course of time yeah if I could also speak to this about occupational health and safety uh, and uh, occupational medicine in general labor medicine um, again I'll through conversations with what is now considered an institute that has zero power because the entire occupational uh, health and safety mechanisms were, were destroyed in the early 2000s. They have zero power. Um, so these like really wonderful Soviet women sit on top of this huge knowledge, um, completely unable to influence anything. Uh, they don't have a mandate to go in any uh, factory, any workplace. Uh, they, they're, I mean, they really are not allowed to do anything. They're just sort of symbolically kept on because of a favor of some politician. And they reminisce about the Soviet Union. Uh, and they, you know, they tell us these things were just fascinating because, you know, it's like, during the Soviet era, about 200 occupational diseases were diagnosed a year, about 200. Now it's zero. Um, and on top of that, last time the director had made a diagnosis, she's a doctor and she said that through mining, these two people had Parkinson's that had gotten it through years of mining company called and threatened her and she never made another diagnosis ever again and so to go back to what Matthew was saying is there was a unitary system where from there was there were um doctors nurses at every single level including the factory level workplace level there was constantly recording any kind of ailments people had there were these occupational health specialists that go in and study long periods the effects of say you know whatever drilling you know, noise vibration and, and so many other things that we don't even think about. And so all of this is gone. Even if you try to give some mandate to these women now, this institute, then there is this protection. Other things like personal information protection, there's this, there's that to try to keep, keep all, to keep the sort of government, so-called government hand out of these enterprises. And so we go from a rich, vibrant, um, preventative, and also richly studied occupational health and safety and labor medicine to zero very quickly. And then there, all these workers are left to their own devices to get help if they need it. Of course, most people are like me. They never go to the doctor unless they're dying. Uh, because we are afraid of doctors and also because we don't really interact with them. It's too much money. <laughs> so you're like, I'm just going to take my chance of dying. Um, and so 
then it's called like oh it's like a man thing you know they'll have like studies be like this is a masculine trait not to go to the doctor and it's like well it's because there's so there's no infrastructure at all to get people in and especially men who need to keep working you know um and so I don't know it's just it's incredible how how at this point when you had such a rich and vibrant healthcare, and you know of course you have a political project of the utopian beautiful project of communism with it, but it's completely demolished and now everyone goes to Turkey to get basic you know care, um, and how would you rebuild that? You know I constantly think about how you would rebuild that like for no reason all of this was destroyed. And how do you even go back to even under these sort of capitalist um, conditions? How do we even rebuild the modicum of what was lost? Uh, um, yeah, uh, no, I don't actually even know where to start. But maybe um, from a reflection that I also had when we looked at primary healthcare here, and that was essentially that uh, it took them a long time to destroy that, at least in, you know, in, in Croatia. So it took about 30 years to completely dismantle the primary healthcare uh, system that was in place. And even today, it's not a complete dismantlement. So you still have um, it's. It's it was so, so rooted in the community and it was so rooted not so even not that much in the feelings of the community, but in community life, uh, that it was essentially impossible to just do without it overnight. I'm not saying that they, they did not try, uh, but you still he have traces of the things that worked best and the things that essentially are not translatable into a capitalist world. So, you know, uh, if we look at the, at the health centers right now, uh, we do see a lot of private general practitioners working from the the health centers, but it's still impossible to, for example, privatize the community nursing service. That part is still public because how do you translate something like that in a profit-driven logic? Nobody would, you know, nobody would do that. Uh, and yet it's so useful and the people relate so much to that kind of program uh, that it's not something that you can just say, oh, well, that's not going to exist from tomorrow anymore. So I think it, um, while it is true that it's, you know, it's overall the health system has been completely destroyed throughout the, throughout the, the past decades, there are still traces of things that we can use to rebuild. And I think this kind of feeling of what's important in healthcare and um, the understanding that health is much more than this kind of technical, uh, yeah, technical approach, which is just here to fix people when they're broken, still exists, and people still relate to that uh, to that part. Um, I feel that since since a couple of years, maybe even more than they did 10 or 15 years ago, because there's been uh, there's been a lot of more frank and open discussion about why we have the health situation that we have right now. 
which again, as Sopo was saying before, you know, you see health indicators which are uh, worsened compared to what they were before. Uh, they're definitely not in line with uh, what uh, with what other countries are seeing. So um, there is both the legacy of well-organized or healthcare, which still lives, at least unconsciously. And on the other hand, we have the understanding that it doesn't have to look the way it's looking today. So that's, you know, uh, I'm not overly optimistic about anything, so about this also, uh, but I do think that there are things which can be used to rebuild. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the important issues or factors uh, that we haven't really talked about yet is actually the employment conditions for healthcare workers uh, in the social states. You know, I think it's one of the central uh, issues here in Germany, at least. I'm, I mean, I'm sure it's like that in most countries right now, but, uh, you know, these kind of strikes uh, that we're seeing across the world uh, of healthcare workers, nurses uh, and, and, and doctors also um, demanding, you know, better pay uh, and so on. Um, I think one of the things that we discovered when researching the GDR system was in terms of this sort of uh, employment of of of, of doctors or uh, their their employment relations was that you know it was recognized in the in the GDR that um, private employment, especially in sort of primary care um, or self employment, is 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 dangerous because it's. Um, yeah, like I said earlier, you know, you're financially incentivized to treat patients rather than actually prevent their diseases. Uh, and we were, while we were researching this with uh, Dr. Neiman, uh, he actually told us that this was not a, it was not really a particularly socialist uh, uh, discovery of this. You know, they were talking about this actually in the 1920s already, uh, at least in Germany in the Weimar era, um, that, you know, we had to kind of overcome this model of private self-employed doctors in their private practices. Um, and I think uh, that's one of the really impressive things about the GDR is that this was a process, you know, overcoming this model was very difficult. There was quite a lot of resistance, especially from sort of conservative doctors, uh, physicians, uh, like associations and so on. Um, but they basically overcame it by sort of showing the advantages of public employment. And uh, especially towards the end of the GDR era, you know, sort of the 19, late 1970s and 1980s, you have this uh, employment relations in, in in this healthcare system, where uh, you know physicians, nurses, uh, they're employed. They they they're uh, they have their same rights under their labor code. They're part of the same union, uh, and so you have sort of uh, you know this way you're also overcoming these uh, this hierarchy that you see in, in many healthcare systems today, where you know physicians they're organized in their own associations. Nurses are then part of a a union, and there's a bit of a confrontational relationship between the two groups um you you know you really didn't have that at the end of the the gdr era because you had a sort of a new collegial atmosphere because you know the people who used to be employers and employees were now all of a sudden colleagues um, and i think uh, this really actually helped to improve the situation within the healthcare system itself because the uh, people working there were not under such tension and they were also sort of freed from their um, financial dependency on sick people coming to them so they could really focus on you know preventive care um, and they you know enjoyed a reasonable income oftentimes with sort of uh, fixed salaries um, you know they had holidays that they could enjoy um, and also oftentimes they had holiday sites um, you know camps that were provided by the uh, the union 
Uh, and so it was really a different uh, employment structure there. And uh, I would just be curious to hear uh, whether Anna or Sopo had looked into how the situation was for physicians in, in Yugoslavia or nurses and, and carers also. Really important point. I don't know fully well how it worked exactly in Soviet Georgia. But what I can say is looking at it now and going back to sort of like, what is it now? makes me think um, through conversations, especially with nurses and all these sort of like superstar doctors that exist. Uh, often the doctor owns the clinic and he's the owner and the, you know, and the doctor. And so there's a lot more hierarchy now within these clinics than there was before. The nurses are absolutely not listened to and the sort of orderly slash like hygiene workers are completely treated like not even human in this sort of hierarchy. Um, the doctor is usually like a manager, um, very much. And then there's administrative capacity that has been introduced in all this. So the administrators are actually the ones determining even functions of the doctors if it's not like a smaller clinic. If it's like the big, you know, Bank of Georgia owned um, enterprises, because it's most a huge part of the market is just owned by banks here, <laughs> one bank in particular, um, and they really want to reduce this down to this sort of a science of like administration, you know, like not and take away sort an autonomy of of doctors and nurses, and then as opposed to that, there's a sort of more doctor centric but still a very hierarchical clinics as well. What um, from a very small pool that um, my colleague interviewed, it seemed like the very, very few, like just a handful of uh, public um, hospitals that are left, the nurses seemed like they were listened to more and felt better about their role than the private ones. And again, this is a, not extensive research, but it's what seemed like from the conversations and the surveys that we had done in Solidarity Network, our union. Same time, um, I think this idea of, you know, because everybody now in Georgia is a huge part, uh, believes that you know, there should be profit in healthcare, uh, which wasn't always this, uh, so. Like over the years, it's gotten more and more um, this way because there are studies done even by like pretty right-wing organizations that doctors are like no there should be no profit in healthcare and then slowly it has shifted more and more to uh, you know doc this idea that doctors will be owning their um, clinics so they've embraced it more and as well if you look at one of the weirder statistics is that the amount of doctors we have now, like enrolling and becoming doctors, is significantly higher than it was in 1989, because everyone is trying to be a doctor. We're while we're, you know, don't have like a third of the nurses that we need, it's because the doctor is an entrepreneur, right? So if everybody's going in, wanting to be this. They could also move to another country and have higher incomes, and also own a clinic here. So. There's a lot of in market incentive, even though not market demand, um, to become doctor so that you can then be an entrepreneur. And this kind of 
was really interesting. I have been going on this binge of watching the opiate crisis in the U.S. <laughs> like I became obsessed with like I watched like hours and hours and hours of this, and it was this really interesting point where it said like this one um, drug representative that was getting all these doctors to prescribe these incredibly unsafe highly addictive opiates and uh, the drug rep said we had the best um, luck with the doctors that thought of themselves entrepreneurs so it's such an important part of how people also conceive of themselves their roles so the doctors that thought of since entrepreneurs were much more likely to push these dangerous opiates and kill people because they looked at it as like a market and they're just a you know provider on this market than the doctors that thought of themselves as people who care for their communities. So the the doctors were deeply embedded within their communities. Like this was in uh, West Virginia, was a mining town, right? And felt a sense of responsibility for their patients because they're known and they had sort of community pressure as well, right? They were harder to turn, let's say, than doctors who do not see themselves this way. So these these things sort of tell me that it is incredibly important to, I think, um, this sort of petit bourgeois consciousness that, that comes up with being doctor needs to be suppressed because it doesn't produce the results for patients that's necessary. So I don't have a lot of the answers as far as how the Soviet Union was, was um, organized that way, but it does look like it was much, it was, it was repressed, these petty bourgeois sort of tendencies, even though I do think in Georgia, a lot of these, like, I do think there was a lot of, um, a lot of leeway, I think, as far as opposing a lot of these sort of Soviet style, uh, because they did, a, they did, um, in general, promote a lot of individuals, let's say, sort of glory and fetishization of individuals that did happen in Georgia. But I cannot give you definitive answers. There's some of my thinking. Yeah, um, I also, I mean, maybe just to add a couple of things. I mean, I think uh, this is uh, one of the very tricky issues that the GDR had to deal with. You know, this sort of, uh, as you're saying, the doctor, the self-understanding of the doctor as like a, as an entrepreneur, you know, especially in the early years. This was something that uh, took a lot of work to to get over it. And, you know, as I said, there was quite a lot of resistance from these conservative physicians associations who, yeah, basically wanted to keep this outdated uh, model of the private practice because, of course, they were sort of, they felt in charge. They didn't have to deal with colleagues um, and they could be yeah, basically prescribing uh, medicine at will and charging the patients or the insurance system for this. Uh, and so there was sort of a, a period, especially when the when the border was open between East and West Germany, uh, where East Germany was uh, having a very difficult time sort of making compromises with these uh, private physicians and at the same time trying to create this uh, yeah, pioneering system of, of medicine, um, which you know, over the years, they also addressed by basically trying to raise a kind of a new doctor, you know, uh, sort of, I guess, what's uh, embodied by doctors like uh, Che Guevara or um, Maxim Setkin, who was actually uh, in the GDR. He's the son of Clara Setkin. Uh, he was a, a physician who was trained in the Soviet Union and helped to construct the uh, healthcare system in East Germany. And uh, these were kind of, uh, there was a sort of a new generation of doctor that they were trying to uh, raise, especially from working class and peasant families um, who would then uh, sort of see the merits of this 
public employment system uh, and not be so uh, dead set on this old outdated model uh, which was actually uh, counterproductive just in purely medical terms right uh, so there was this sort of dual approach of uh, yeah making compromises with the uh, conservative doctors and also rearing a new generation of doctor who uh, saw the benefits you know like as I was saying public employment you know you have a safe contract you don't have to worry about running your own practice you also have fixed uh, hours you have uh, holidays you have um you know uh, people who can step in when you're sick or when you're on holidays so you don't have to find other doctors in other practices that you can refer your patients to and so on uh, and i think this was also something that over the years physicians just came to appreciate that actually the system is more efficient um and so it's uh, it was it was a model that by the end of the GDR, you know, they had actually overcome this private uh, practice model of healthcare, and I think it was actually uh, a great achievement. And you know, coming back to now, sort of the post nineteen ninety uh, world, uh, they just really eradicated this whole all of these achievements in the GDR. I think uh, in, in in contrast to countries like uh, Yugoslavia. Uh, or even in Georgia, where there was a sort of a gradual transition, you know, in the East German context, uh, it was essentially annexed by West Germany. You know, it wasn't a, a reunification as such. It was more an imposition of the West German model onto East Germany. So, uh, you know, all of these, uh, this long process and, uh, you know, struggle really to overcome uh, private practices uh, was just sort of undone overnight. And they were reimposing this old model uh, onto onto East Germany, which, uh, as we saw during the COVID pandemic, uh, really showed its 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 weaknesses. And uh, still today, you know, just finding an appointment, uh, things like that, is just remarkably difficult in Germany today. And uh, of course, it's having uh, serious implications for people's health, especially for prevention. Um, okay, so um, I can maybe just add a bit, assuming that you know I understood, I, I caught enough of the question. Um, but yeah, so um, maybe interesting for the Yugoslav context was that um, there was this kind of early push, uh, well, maybe not push, but there was an early attempt to advocate for um, for a social, uh, for, for a public health system which would employ doctors rather than being based on uh, private practices, even before... Uh, so socialist Yugoslavia was formed. Uh, and already at that time, you have this enormous pushback by the, again, by the physicians associations, which don't actually want to hear about that. Uh, and I think th that much, that much is quite, uh, quite similar. Then um, what we see throughout socialist Yugoslavia is that, yes, you know, the, uh, they are in fact, capable of building a different narrative of how health can be organized and show people the benefits of being employed in, in the public service. And I think the best, best proof of that was that for, uh, when, we, when we spoke to people who worked both in the Yugoslav health system and then they worked in the, in the Croatian health system, uh, they recall this time of transition at the beginning of the 90s when they were being explained uh, the new model, which is again based uh, on a private practitioner who employs a nurse and provides care to a set number of patients, as opposed to a doctor who is employed 
in the community center along in parallel to the nurse and to the other health workers is that people were, were actually shocked. So, you know, they couldn't imagine how this would look. And it was the health workers who essentially were saying, well, you know, guys, we don't want to do this. The only way that they managed to get this part of the reform through is because they scared people and they told them, well, if you're not going to agree to that, then we cannot guarantee you a job after the transition uh, has begun. And so what happened is that, you know, people say, okay, so we'll sign this kind of contract that makes us private practitioners uh, and we'll take the nurses with us. And then in a matter of years, you have a kind of restoration of the old logic that was there because the doctors understand that, well, yes, you know, there's more money in this for us. So we are um, that that kind of socialist medicine and uh, the public service employment uh, worked pretty nice, but this makes us more money. Uh, so it is this kind of shift to the entrepreneurial logic that also Sopel was referring to. Um, and one final point where I think it's quite pronounced is right now, because for a long, well, for a couple of decades at least, uh, you had very low interest among people who studied medicine to go and work in family medicine and to work in primary healthcare. It was not seen as something that uh, you would do if you're a good student or if you're ambitious or anything. Uh, it changes at the point when they understand that there's more money in there than there is, for example, if they're working as a specialist doctor in a smaller hospital or something like that. So it's again, you know, this kind of, shift of a logic again completely just like nothing has happened over the 40 uh, yeah what how many years was it 45 yeah 45 years of yugoslavia so it's uh when we have these uh, discussions it's not only because we're interested in history and what happened in these places but because you know so something about these experiments and the way in which they were they ended can kind of give us lessons for the future. And so I want to know what would you guys say is the single most important lesson um, for the present, you know, that we can take from these experiences to sort of move forward in changing the discussions and maybe changing the, you know, left-wing approaches to understanding and imagining uh, healthcare and health and social health you know what is it from the gdr and from yugoslavia and from you know the soviet experience that can give us kind of a lesson uh, of moving forward what is the, the the key pillar the key lesson uh i can begin if you like um i think uh maybe to just briefly answer both questions um I think what surprised me a lot when we were doing this research was learning about this uh, polyclinic system, which uh, we didn't get into too much today. Um, I definitely recommend looking at uh, the publication on our website to to read more about it because I think it's uh, very interesting because it allowed me to sort of contrast my experience with uh, my own you know healthcare here and also my my kids' healthcare here uh, and and understanding that there was this model of outpatient care which was. Uh, just very efficient, you know, the fact that you could walk in, 
uh, you could see any number of specialists, uh, any doctor, um, and uh, not have to worry about dealing with your own patient files. Or if the doctor was sick, there would always be a substitute in the same building. You know, I can't tell you how many times we've gone to the doctor here and then they tell you, oh, the doctor's sick. Uh, you're going to have to go to the other end of town to a different private practice somewhere else. Uh, but you'll have to take these patient files with you because they won't have your patient files. I mean, it's, you know, it's just this fragmented system here is uh, just very frustrating also for patients, you know, and I can't imagine what it's like for doctors as well. So I think uh, learning about this unitary system uh, that's effective um, and that uh, even, like I said, under these difficult conditions, economic conditions, was able to uh, create a, an efficient healthcare system uh, was very surprising for me. I think in terms of uh, taking lessons for the future, uh, I don't know if this is uh, a controversial statement uh, in this group uh, discussion, but I would say, you know, when we look at this history, um, we have to be careful not to think that we can take individual parts of the socialist healthcare system and implement them to the conditions that we have today. Uh, I think that uh, if you really look at the root of socialist healthcare, socialist medicine, it, it is based on public ownership. It's based on socialist property relations, you know, and I think um, it means that uh, in all these discussions that we're having today uh, in progressive movements or in healthcare struggles, uh, we really need to still pose the question of, of property, property relations, you know, uh, it's uh, definitely a more of a long-term uh question a long-term uh, demand and objective uh, but i think as i tried to really highlight today is that you know this is the framework that allows you to approach health policy um, from this socio-economic perspective uh, and, and 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 realize what you know is much touted today as this health in all policies you know you hear it all the time in the eu they're talking about health in all policies that you know health policy should be integrated in into economic policy, into social policies, and so on. But look, if you're serious about realizing that, then you you need to have the framework for it. You need to have the economic basis for it. And that is ultimately socialist property relates. So I would say uh, that's our, and still must remain the ambitious uh, objective uh, in the long term if we're serious about creating healthcare systems that are oriented uh, around people instead of profits. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's essentially um, the lesson that I take, I reflect mo mostly most on uh, is quite related to that. So the thing that struck me the most is that uh, essentially it worked. So that's something that both surprised me the most and it's something that I draw most hope from. So it's very, you know, uh, it's very easy to get gaslighted or something when you talk about socialist healthcare because people say well you know nice try but it didn't work it did work so you know uh, uh, constantly remind ourselves that the things that they did uh, they worked so the things that we are talking about today so the right to health the primary healthcare uh, system that we have uh, the health workers rights inside the health system all of those things were either implemented or they were at least trying to implement them and they made a difference. So, you know, when some someone someone comes and says, oh, well, it's not really that, it doesn't make that much of a difference if we're 
uh, in a socialist society, uh, if we're talking about the socialist healthcare system, or if we're talking about a very well-functioning and very well-regulated well health system in, uh, uh, in, a, in, in a market economy, uh, it's not true. It, it makes loads of difference. Uh, you know, it makes every difference between the health system that uh, you're going to get and, it get, and it makes all the difference in the kind of health outcomes that you're going to get. So it's not the same effect that you're having. And I think that's that's one of the things that uh, maybe as people who who, talk, who think about health from, from this kind of left perspective uh, is very important to be quite outspoken about. So, you know, uh, one of, another thing that, and that was the most shocking thing for me was how, how controversial it was in the health community to talk about socialism. It's essentially not allowed. So it's not something that's done. It's something that's considered to be uh, a very bleak part of uh, health history that shouldn't be ever reapproached again or thought about. And the the funny fact is that, you know, the best things that we still have in the healthcare system come from that bleak period of the past. So, uh, yeah, that's the most shocking, but also I think the most useful lesson that I got that it's need, you know, you we really need to talk about about those stuff. Yeah, just to pretty much piggyback off of what Matthew and, and Anna have said. The socialist project is something you really need. Um and also it as Anna said, it it worked. Uh it works. Um so I think that's also been really uh, amazing for me as well that the assumption is that some kind of high-tech interventionist healthcare is what people need and then you really unpack unravel and find out that 99.9 percent .9 of health is not these things it's every little thing from and we haven't really discussed the mental health and stress components that make everything worse and that comes from this horrible world that we live in uh, the pressure from job. And if you just look at like very concrete example, you know, the platform workers who are pushed constantly to work more and get those orders in that risk their lives and their mopeds and bicycles and so on and constantly uh, getting into injury, uh, into car crashes and injuries and, and also stress of working insane hours just to make ends meet. So all these things show how and any kind of you know organization of life that puts profit, puts survival at its core is ultimately doomed uh, is someplace that none of us want to live in. Um, or we're trying to find ways of somehow getting out of it right within it. Um, and then having a system where even just feeling the interest that someone cares for you, not just like your family member, if you have family members <laughs> uh, or friends. I have never lived anywhere where no anyone cared, like a state cared for me. <laughs> and only like Soviet Union for like when I was a child, you know, it was at the breaking, you know, the, the better historical period. Uh, and I do remember having doctors come to my house and take care of me always I never went to I never went somewhere they always came to my house I remember that uh, I remember also staying in the hospital when I got food poisoning you know um 
but there is a level of care when you know it's that you are not going to die if you get sick like i feel now because my two countries are us and georgia they're both absolutely you know zero zero guarantees for 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 sickness um no i do I live in fear of getting sick and dying. I live in fear of getting sick and not being able to afford treatment. Um, I I live in fear of having to go fund me a surgery. You know, like that's a real fear I have of also humiliating experience when you have to ask people to donate money so you can survive. I mean, this is the American healthcare is go fund me. And so just the life, the dignity of ha like having dignity, knowing that you are not going to be disposed of when you're old or disabled or, you know, unfit for work for whatever period. And it's a different kind of world to live in that I have not, I don't remember ever having. And that's something that I will definitely fight, I fight for and I really want to see. Show us the